That sound you're hearing is the sound of life getting back into its full swing here in London. And where better to capture it than at one of the finest restaurants in London, one of the finest restaurants in the world as far as I'm concerned, the Wolseley. I'm delighted to be joined here by associate editor for The Spectator and author of best-selling books that include The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, Islam, and that which we'll be discussing on this episode, The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race and Identity, Douglas Murray. Douglas, good afternoon. Afternoon, very good to be with you. This place is a personal favourite of both yours and mine. If I were the author, I would have chosen the Wolseley. So tell me, what does the Wolseley mean to you? Oh, I just love it. I used to live not far from here, I think just when the Wolseley opened. And I remember when it was a car showroom, I think, and um, a long time ago. Oh, I, I like the buzz. I like the menu. I like the fact you almost always see somebody you either know or would like to know. Of course, you used to always see Lucian Freud in here. And I once saw one night the great man going out and all of the staff for the restaurant formed lines on either side of the door like a guard of honour uh, as he went out. And I thought that was so moving because... He, you know, a painter of his greatness deserved to be treated greatly. I rather like the sight. This year really began with challenges that you'd have thought would give people pause to reassess their priorities, simplify their lives and find common ground with one another. Had you any such hopes when you knew the pandemic was going to hit? Or was it clear to you from the start that millions of people stuck holding smartphones was going to make this virtually impossible? Well, you know, there's something about the corona era that we moved over too fast, which is that we live in Britain in a society that was said in recent years in particular to be completely riven. We were said to live in a totally divided society, which increasingly couldn't get on. Some of it felt justified at the time. But isn't it interesting that the coronavirus came along and whatever one's interpretation is now of what that meant, it turned out we could unify. I mean, a conservative prime minister told the entire country to stay in our homes for weeks on end, and we did. I mean, that, that requires a moment of recognition that we said we had no trust as a society, but it turned out we did have stores of trust. I think that some institutions came out of it better than others. But, you know, it was very striking to me that, for instance, and again, I mean, this might change, and I'm worried about the, 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 as it were, the trust in scientists and expertise, whilst having a good run in the short term, might have just taken a massive long-term hit because of the some of the projections and so on. But isn't it amazing that the advice of experts was listened to by the country and we acted on it in a way that would have been unforeseeable a few weeks earlier. Almost every month since Amanda Socrates pitched shelves, new instances of the problems you identify in the book have come to bear, and yeah. including many of the things you predict in it. Where are we in the ongoing saga, as it were? Well, actually, it connects slightly to the corona era, because when the corona thing first started, I thought, oh, well, that'll see off the social justice movements. I mean, after all, if everyone is facing a real catastrophe, they might have even less time for people with fears about microaggressions, for instance, you know? And then I thought, well, actually, what will happen is the people who do that game are going to double down on it. And you could see that, you know, corona disproportionately affects women. No, it turns out it disproportionately affects men. Well, it might be killing the men, but the women are doing the suffering or something like that. Oh, I mean, they even had attempts to do LGBT in the time of Corona, you know, this sort of stuff. Then there was the racial element of it, which did come early on. The people who wanted to see everything through that prism. 
people disproportionately suffering from it. And that was a very interesting and important question. People seemed reluctant to say why might that be the case and seemed more keen to sort of say we can't even import a virus without giving it our own horrible racial spin. But I thought, okay, they're going to double down on that. But the general public will just have less time for it. And then George Floyd happened. And it was like kerosene being thrown on. And we've slightly stepped back from that brink in the UK. I'm not sure they have in America, and I don't think they will until November, when arguably, whichever way the vote goes, you can see the conditions for the kerosene to continue to be poured, you know. At what point did we decide that positive social change could only happen if debate was considered an obstruction? Oh, that's very recent. There's been enormous radicalization on all sides. But the one that interests me, in this case, in the far left, was radicalized to such an extent that it decided that, for instance, free speech is a right-wing trope. I mean, in fact, just the day of the morning on which we're speaking, a Labour MP uh, said this in, in a piece for a, a news site that uh, used to be a newspaper. She said in this piece that the trans debate demanded no debate. That whilst we are debating other people's lives being ended, now, you know, the usual catastrophism, uh, that's a crazy demand. That's a crazy claim, because, of course, if we don't have words, we only have violence. You know, even a couple of decades ago, I don't think it was at all reasonable for somebody on the left to claim that, for instance, not only should you not debate with somebody on the right, but that if you were seen with somebody on the right, you would be fascist adjacent. What do we think? I think I shall have a crustal of quail eggs and... Then, uh, can I have your burger? You know, I'm 41 now. I know lots of people uh, a bit older than me who say, look, we, know, we, we used to be able to have these discussions. It's quite interesting, you know, now that we've all been able to watch YouTube for months, if you watch just studio discussions of British politics from the 70s, say, people did it no platform, people. And there's a, there's a debate on YouTube, a hour-long conversation about the EU and other things involving Dennis Skinner and Enoch Powell, among others. And they're sitting in a studio, they're disagreeing, they're both talking and debating very well. But Dennis Skinner at no point stands up and says, I cannot sit at a table with Enoch Powell. Uh, there was a recognition of how ideas were had out. And I do worry that we've given up on that. A phrase that endures throughout the book is one uh, I think you borrowed from is it the Aussie thinker, Kenneth Minogue. Mm, um, man. For St. George in Retirement. Could you explain what this, what this yeah. metaphor is and how it bears on the themes of the book? Yeah, Kenneth Minogue was a wonderful man. I knew him a bit at the end of his life, and he was a wonderful thinker, Australian academic, and uh, wrote a great book in the 70s called The Liberal Mind, in which he, um, he, he suggested that the situation of the modern liberal was the, the situation that St. George would have been in um, after he'd slain the dragon. He gets so much acclaim for slaying the dragon that he might be tempted to go around the land looking for more dragons to slay. And there being a paucity of dragons might be swinging his sword at smaller and smaller creatures until eventually he's found swinging his sword into thin air. It's a very interesting and important point and observation because I do think the state of modern campaigning liberalism is, is that, that it's... What, you know, everybody would have loved to have been at the forefront of the civil rights movement. 
what one wouldn't have given to have been with Martin Luther King in the march on Washington. Or indeed, arguably, not so much my thing, but uh, the Stonewall Inn in 1968. The suffragettes. You know, everyone knows because they won that they were on the right side and we all want to be on the right side and we want to be thought well of by our peers. And so there is a temptation always to um, campaign like that, to, to find dragons to slay, even if the land is not filled with dragons. Now, of course, the, the response to this is, ah, but Douglas, there are dragons. We still live in a patriarchal, cis-heteronormative, racist society. I think that's not true, um, or at least in no way is it a fair and accurate claim. But there's something very understandable about the sort of person who, who over-exit because they would like to be seen in the heroic pose. That's why we have to dis tackle racism and homophobia and transphobia and institutionalised misogyny. They present it as if the battle is what the battle was. And I think this is a dementing trait because it asks people to fight harder after the point of victory than people fought before it. As I say at one point in the women chapter in the Man's of Crowds, you know, fourth wave feminists talk about men in a way that first wave feminists wouldn't have ever dreamt of. And the first wave feminists had a rather more of a point. To what extent do you think it's to do with the fact that living as we have done for many decades as a sort of society of spectacle, maybe we've seen too many movies about the great struggles of the past, yes. that the Western imagination now is filled with a sense that our lives are meaningless if we don't in some sense contribute to a legacy. Yes. Roger Scruton described this as the, um, the emancipation interpretation of history. You know, human history is a, a set of acts of emancipation that culminate in us, but we must keep emancipating ourselves. And of course, it is a view of history, I think it's an inadequate one. I think it's a very slanted one. It suggests that all of human history was a process of trying to get equal votes or uh, the franchise. I mean, well, it's, these are desirable things. Um, I'm pleased we've attained them. But it's not the only thing that history has been about. And yes, the, 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 the desire to be in the fight is, obvious, is, is uh, a human trait. The desire to be in a fight that you intuit that you will win or have already won is perhaps an even more human trait. I mean, setting out in the morning and not knowing if you will come back in the evening is a sobering thought. There is something very not sober in the people I'm writing about here because they know they will come back in the evening. They know that they are struggling in an entirely safe fight. But I think that's all part of it. The doing of the very safe thing. You know, in recent weeks with the BLM thing having taken off and made advances to the, in the way it has, which is from a very legitimate movement complaining about a specific undeniable issue in American policing, segments, I might say, of American policing, becoming this thing of bring down capitalism and so on. Look at the people who give in to it. You know, like Anna Winter at Vogue we've not done enough in the past to address racism we must address it 
Yeah, of course, because if you're going to address any grassroots movement, you should lead the way from Vogue magazine, obviously, you know. That'll be the way. These people do it because it's safe. The, the, the only danger would come if they didn't do it. If they didn't agree to sing the hymn we've all got to sing today. That looks very good. That's the quail eggs. Absolutely delicious. In a way, you talk about the natural human instinct to want your life to feel historical, and I think we all have that to a degree. Your point in the book is not that we should not be in the fight, it's just that there are better causes, which if we gave them more consideration, we might devote more time to. But you don't spell out in the book what those are. Yes, I mean, this is a very important aspect of it. I, I think that the, clearly much of this comes because of the collapse of religion. We still have the religious urge, even if the means by which we used to exercise that urge have disappeared. We've got a new one. Again, events of recent weeks, the most extreme I've seen was in Portland, Oregon, as always, where there were some white men literally flagellating themselves in the streets with great welts across their bare backs. And black Americans running over to them and saying, stop, we don't want you to do this. But what are these people? And this is the return of the flagellants. So this, is, this does have the hallmarks of religious movement, including the need to atone, the seeking for forgiveness, uh, and much more. But it ain't religion. It's a poor substitute, and I mind that. I mind that. Uh, but the, the deeper part of the question you ask is, is very hard to address. I, I don't like to lay out, as it were, a plan. My own view is that the job of politics is to create the optimal conditions in a society for people to pursue meaning where they see it. As you know, this was always a divide within liberalism, what John Gray's described as the modus vivendi question. Is liberalism a state of affairs we reach or an ongoing project that we're involved in? You know. Now, I would prefer that one saw it as the former of those things, that that you get the conditions down in the society, the freedoms necessary and the constraints necessary for people to live their lives in the most meaningful way they can. Uh, after that, I have my own ideas of how that's achieved, but I don't like to be doctrinaire about it, you know. I mean, uh, for instance, I don't much care for gathering in large stadiums with tens of thousands of other people watching a ball game. But it wouldn't bother me a moment, and it doesn't bother me a moment, that millions of my fellow countrymen do enjoy that. So what? Um, I'm not going to tell them to do it or not to do it. I'm pleased the situation emerges where our difference of tastes can be allowed and exercised. I think that's the case with much larger and deeper questions as well. I have my own answers to where people find meaning in their lives and if people ask for advice I can give it but I don't even think it's necessarily something that you can say everybody's going to do in the same way I mean um, again it's it's about having the conditions in your society that would allow you to do that after that is all over to you but that said of course you can't have a total void and I do worry that one thing that has gone on in recent years has been that the society basically says, find your meaning where you like, and gives no signposts. And I think for young people, this is a very, very big challenge. That's where the conservative tradition has most to offer. 
It's to say, don't hate the past. Use it, learn from it, grow on it, develop it, be a part of it and extend it. Uh, and that's my own view, is that the mo most useful way to find meaning is to seek for it in places where people have sought it before. This may not be known to all of your readers, um, but the title Madness of Crowds derives from a collection of essays by the Scottish journalist Charles Mackay. In that, he chronicles the spread and decline of popular delusions throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. His observations include several major financial crises yes. of the period, and I suppose it's easy to forget that prior to the decade just gone, we saw in the crash of 2008 the consequences of a kind of crowd madness that had lasting systemic impact. What did that crash do to our politics that we didn't recognize at the time or see coming? Um, you're, you're right. I, I love the Mackay book because, in fact, the people who recognize the illusion in my title are almost always financial people because in the financial community, actually, it's still quite well known. I know a number of people who give it to their em employees because what Mackay brilliantly does is describe, among other things, the you know, tulip mania the South Sea bubble, Mississippi bubble. And, you know, these are very, there's a lot of very interesting things that are revealed about human nature in these financial bubbles. Uh, I think one of the most interesting things about history as you're going through it is how hard it is to realize that's what you're going through. The 2008 crisis is still interests me enormously because it feels to me like something we credited had happened and, did, and assumed wouldn't have any consequences. And I think there are uh, huge consequences from it. I think the financial consequences have been sort of forgotten about. We had the austerity debate, but not much more. And we've ignored, among other things, the fact that a portion of the population has pulled away from another population. We see it in the difficulty of young people getting on the housing ladder, the near impossibility of living in a capital city, in a house of your own. And these aren't small things, but they've happened gradually to the extent that people just don't notice them or observe them. And I think these things have massive follow-on effects. Now, the cultural effect of 2008, as I see it, is among other things that the, econ the economics went wrong. And economic historians I know, like, Robert Skidelsky often argue that really the reason why economics is, matters so much is that when the economics goes wrong, everything else can go wrong. Now, of course, you may say, well, of course, economic historians would say that. <laughs> That's their job. But I do think there's a lot in that. We know that from history. Whenever the economics goes wrong, things happen. And they went wrong in 2008, and we pretended life would go on as normal and on the surface in a way it did who was it who wants to find happiness not as what you get or comparing what you get to what other people have got but happiness as being the divide between what you expected and what you got if you believed that if you were honest worked hard played correctly you would get x and then you didn't you might well wonder what the point of holding to all those rules was. I think that in the, in the meantime, a lot of people get keen to do other things. I think in the corporations, there's a very obvious thing, which is that why have the corporations all gone woke? Because it's the cheapest thing they can do. Why do Barclays and HSBC go on and on about Pride Month? 
because it's cheaper than accounting for what happened. I want to share with you a quote by the 32-year-old actress and screenwriter Michaela Cole. It goes like this. We became a generation interested in ourselves. We have no problem with self-involvement. They call us vain. We say we must have got it somewhere, so technically we're blameless. So we're monstrous and shameless. Look at us while we're talking to you. We are the generation that decided we should be looked at. No more to documentaries of undiscovered worlds, of undercover investigations, of unreported people. We are the generation that decided if you won't look at us, we'll look at ourselves. We're talking here about the generational sense of disappointment, deflated expectation, and this inversion of curiosity about the world because of the diminishing returns of directing your attention outward. I knew a clergyman once who said that a young man, son of a parishioner, travelled around the world in his gap year. And my, uh, my friend said, um, what did you learn? And the young man said, I learned so much about myself. And my friend said, and what about the world? This is a very deep conundrum of the time. This has been developing for years. It, 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 again, it's an educational issue. Um, it comes from the idea of expressing yourself when you don't have anything to express um, because yourself is not formed. And this existing in very young people is understandable, but the adults ought to be able to persuade the young people as they grow up that yourself is not as interesting as all that. It can be very, very interesting. We are extraordinary beings. But outside of ourselves is more extraordinary. And there is some very early but subtle mi misrailing that has occurred that means that people are encouraged to find almost a preternatural thing in themselves that should be brought out. And really what should be said is you may well have a lot to contribute, and everybody may, but you'll have to put in the hours before you start. I mean, you know this. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I love music. It's not my instinctive reason for loving, but one of the reasons I suppose why I admire musicians in particular is that in music you can't fake it. Um, you can fake it in art. There have been for quite, it has been for quite a long time now. Um, people who can't draw, can't paint, can't make anything, who are artists because nobody knows what the rules are. And so they say that they express themselves without having any skill. Well, you can do that in performance of other kinds, arguably with acting to a degree, uh, arguably with writing, to some degree. The one you just can't fake it in is music. If you can't play the chord, you can't play the chord. You can either sit down at the piano and play, or you can't. And people judge your performance on its skill. And the great performers realize that you need the skill in order to say the thing you wanted to say before you had the skill. But to think that you would just sit down at the piano or the guitar, just start strumming or playing and thus express yourself is a nonsense. And, and, and that, you know, the really great teachers I know, school teachers in particular, express this to the children that you will have to put in all of this work before you get the chance to play you know um, but a lot of people have missed that
So how do we restore, importantly, the principle of charity in public discourse, starting perhaps from the idea that people generally have good intentions when they say something, and if they make mistakes, those mistakes bear those good intentions. One answer I think I give in the matters of crowds is, is a very general one, but it's one I first noticed in de Tocqueville, which is the importance of face-to-face -face interaction. It's much harder to kick somebody if they're sitting in front of you. It's much easier to do it if they're online and they're not a person. You know, and a lot of the studies that have been done on this show this. You know, I realized this very early on with Twitter. There are people who I know and like and still slightly admire, who I admire less because of their behavior online, but who I would not want to fall out with. And I know I would if we had everything out. And I see some people who fall out with almost everybody. Among other things, they're natural allies, you know? We disagreed on this, therefore. And then they say something terrible about the other person and horrible. And then the other person doesn't want to have anything to do with them. And then they wonder why they're lonely. And I mean, I. The real problem is that we, we can't communicate if we think that the other side or the other people are going to do something funny when our back's turned. To steal, man, <laughs> some of my opponents. They think I shouldn't make any inroads because if I make one inroad, after that comes fascism. If they allow themselves to read a book of mine, before they know it, they'll be opening concentration camps. It's something like that. They think, let me, I can bring it down a notch. They think there will be a tendency towards authoritarianism or something like that, intolerance. Well, of course, if, if you think that, of course you're trying to hold this line of don't even read the words. But if you can trust that the other person is willing to play by the same modus vivendi as you, and that broadly speaking, you're disagreeing on the arrangements, not on the whole damn thing. And there's one other thing to say about that is this gets easier as you get older, as I'm sure you know. When you're young, you think all the time that you're fighting for everything because your sense of things is wrapped up in yourself. It is why young people find it quite hard to lose an argument or to be proven wrong in an argument because your self-esteem is reliant on your argument. And of course that never completely goes away, but if I was wrong completely on something, I would want to know it. And, and I have had my mind changed on a lot of things in my life. And to my mind, it's a rather wonderful thing. It's a paraphrase that moment in Tom Stoppard's Arcadia, there's a beautiful speech where I think it's Septimus who says it's the most exciting imaginable time to be alive when everything you thought you knew turned out to be wrong. <laughs> I'm hoping this generation's going to have that moment. Here's to being a bit older. Here's to the art of association. Here's to face-to-face -face interaction. Douglas Murray, thank you. It's a great pleasure. I enjoyed that. Lovely food, wasn't it? Fantastic, as always. It was great. Can I get a coffee?